Well, good morning again, everybody. Today and next week, uh, the Lord willing, I'm going to present two sermons on a short but dangerous section of Paul's first letter to the Corinthians. In actual fact, this is part of our larger series of sermons on 1 Corinthians, which we began uh, in uh, August, September of last year. We began with four sermons on the first four chapters. So uh, I hope to be working through um, uh, the entire book uh, as we go forward. 1 Corinthians is one of two two surviving letters from a whole series of letters that moved back and forth between the Christian church in the Greek city of Corinth and Paul, who at the time of writing was in Ephesus in modern-day Turkey, about 500 kilometers away, due east across the Aegean Sea. Paul knows the church intimately. He founded it and has visited it several times in his travels, and he spent a considerable amount of time there. Chapters 5 and 6 together are one discrete section within this long letter, united by a variety of features, including uh, united by uh, a tone of very sharp rebuke, harsh language, and a refrain that becomes a catchphrase. Do you not know? Um, uh, Which is an excellent translation, or as it could be translated perhaps um, more literally, have you not understood? Seven times we hear, have you not understood? Now, in this section, there are two presenting issues. One, there is sexual immorality in the church in Corinth. Two, there are lawsuits among the believers. I will uh, talk about these issues. I'm not going to ignore them. But I also hope to focus um, in particular on some perhaps overarching issues, some bigger picture ideas. And I think that there are two of them worth thinking about. Firstly, Paul's use of the Old Testament. How does he apply the Old Testament to this New Testament situation? And two, What does this text teach us about Christian community, about church life together? The first is important because we routinely engage with the Old Testament as part of making all kinds of decisions as to what is acceptable or what's not. Such as, for example, is it okay for me to buy a bacon double cheeseburger? Or is it okay for me to buy a bacon double cheeseburger on Sunday? Or is it okay for me to buy a bacon double cheeseburger on a Saturday? Can't get through those questions without engaging at least at some level with the Old Testament. And the second is important because, more seriously, as we shall see in these chapters, certain individuals come in for sharp rebuke from Paul, but the big guns, the the, the major artillery salvos, they are reserved not for individuals, but actually for the whole community. The whole community is rebuked in very harsh terms. Everyone together in Corinth culpable for failing corporately to create an authentic Christian community. As uh, chapter 5 opens, we find out that Paul has heard, presumably from the people who have actually come delivering the letter, Paul has heard that there is widespread sexual immorality in the church in Corinth. Indeed, one man is having a sexual relationship um, with his father's wife. And 
from the language. He has his father's wife from the language. It sounds like they are married. But whether the woman is his mother or stepmother, whether the woman is still married or divorced or widowed, the relationship is incestuous and illegal. Speaking biblically, um, just as it would be, incidentally, void under Australian law today. Um, So for Paul, this is sexual immorality, irrespective of whether or not they consider themselves married in the eyes of uh, the world or the church. But the culture of the church in Corinth is such that this is actually something that they're celebrating, giving affirmation and approval rather than censure and rebuke. Well, from the New Testament as a whole, we get the very clear impression that it was very difficult for Christians of Gentile background and for Corinthian Christians in particular, very difficult for them to appreciate that God is serious in saying no to sex outside of marriage, no to sex before marriage, and and for marriage to be defined according to his rather than the world's definition. So, So what's needed is teaching. And that's what Paul does. And Paul uses the Old Testament to teach. Again and again and again, his lessons are based explicitly or implicitly, solidly on the Old Testament. But I think something that's really worth noticing is, first, is that Paul doesn't use the Old Testament in the way we might have expected. Because at one level, all Paul needs to say... Uh, is to say, this is what the Bible says, and quote from Leviticus 18.8 and Leviticus 20.11, wherein you'd find, do not have sexual relations with your father's wife that would dishonor your father. And if a man has sexual relations with his father's wife, he has dishonored his father, both the man and the woman are to be put to death. Their blood will be on their own heads. Uh, both quotations from Leviticus in ancient Israel. Leviticus was the first book of the Bible that children were introduced to. A wonderful book about how to live in God's holy presence as God's holy people. A book that teaches the basic and fundamental distinctions that all Israelites were going to need to understand, that they might be able to distinguish between the holy and the profane, between the clean and the unclean. These categories, in turn, refer to God-given boundaries. Some obvious from what we'd call the natural world, some not obvious at all. God's holy people recognize, respect, and Honor God-given boundaries. That Paul doesn't choose to quote this text that I'm sure he knew backwards from memory, that Paul chooses not to quote these texts is significant. And he doesn't mention any of the associated 
categories. He doesn't mention clean or unclean. He doesn't mention the death penalty or the shedding of blood. And that's because Paul knows that Jesus has indeed paid the price by the shedding of his blood, his blood for ours, on the cross. We are clean. We are forgiven. We are set free from the curses of the law when we are in Christ. Yet and nevertheless, Paul is seriously cross that the Corinthian Christian culture is approving of things that the Old Testament labels clearly as sin. And he explains why in chapter 6, to which we will now turn. Uh, So if you have your Bible open, you might like to turn to verse 12 of chapter 6. In chapter 6, we begin by actually getting a window, a great window, into the ideas that the Corinthian Christians themselves had about sex. How did they make sense of it? How did they understand it? Paul is almost certainly quoting from a variety of their proverbs and catchphrases when he writes... I have the right to do anything. And food for the stomach and the stomach for food, and God will destroy them both. Chapter 6, verses 12 and 13. Each catchphrase representing a theological truth which they have misunderstood and misapplied so as to come to the conclusion that we're, well, we're, we're free, really, aren't we? We're free from the law of the Old Testament. We have the right to do, to do anything. And the libido is simply an appetite, a physical appetite, an appetite which you don't need to overthink or obsess over. It's an itch that must be scratched, really. And after all, the body doesn't matter. What matters is spiritual things, not bodily things, because after all, uh, the body um, will be destroyed. But the spirit lasts forever. Wrong at every step but we may understand how they got there. And in answer, Paul introduces his own catchphrase. Not everything is beneficial. I will not be mastered by anything. Good things to memorize. The body for the Lord and the Lord for the body. And seven times, have you not understood? Well, Fundamental to the Greek Corinthian approach to life and understanding the universe in which they lived was a separation in their minds between the physical and the spiritual as two starkly different things. In their minds, then, the gospel was about spirituality and spiritual issues, whereas sexuality was about the body. Souls go to heaven. But bodies are temporary. They decompose. But, Paul teaches, the body is not meant for sexual immorality, but for the Lord. And the Lord is for the body. And later, do you not know that your bodies, I'm reading from verse 19, do you not know that your bodies are temples of the Holy Spirit, who is in you, whom you have received from God. You are not your own. You were bought at a price. 
Therefore, honor God with your bodies. Paul refuses to honor that Greek dualism, that dichotomy, that separation, and the thinking that comes out of it. No, the human body in Christ is sacred ground. Now with a sacred purpose and with a sacred future. The body has a spiritual purpose and the spiritual gospel has a bodily purpose. The body is for the Lord. We offer our bodies to God as a living sacrifice, serving him in and with and through our bodies. And the Lord is for the body. Jesus delights in looking after us. As we've sung already, he delights uh, in, 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 in looking after us bodily. He delights in feeding us, healing us, clothing us. Christ died not to save disembodied souls, but to resurrect spirit-filled bodies, physical bodies. It is not God's purpose to divide spiritual and physical, but rather to unite them. Paul is is teaching fundamental lessons, basic lessons from the Old Testament, from Genesis chapters 1 and 2. God created everything and it was very good. Matter matters to God. And from Leviticus, be holy just as the Lord is holy. People are saved by God for God. Verse 14, chapter 6, by his power, God raised the Lord from the dead, and he will raise us also. The gospel is about the resurrection of bodies, not their destruction. Do you not know that your bodies are members of Christ himself? Shall I then take the members of Christ and unite them with a prostitute? Never! Do you not understand that he who unites himself with a prostitute is one with her in body? For it is said, the two will become one flesh. Paul's teaching from the Old Testament. He quotes from Genesis 2, 24 as the authoritative text when it comes to sexual morality and therefore in defining sexual immorality. Genesis 2, 24 That is why a man leaves his father and mother and is united to his wife, and they become one flesh. Uh, Paul draws uh, the inference that is everywhere in the Old Testament. To have sex with someone is effectively to be married to them. You cannot divorce sex from marriage. For one primary purpose, it's not the only purpose, but one primary purpose of sex is to depict in intimate, bodily, and private terms a very public and legal truth. These two people are one new family of one body and bone, as the Hebrews would say, or as we might say, flesh and blood, family. Verse 17, but whoever is united with the Lord is one with him in spirit. What we're not going to do here is divorce spirit from body, Paul is saying. 
to the Corinthian Christians, you are already having spiritual intercourse with Jesus because you are part of his body. What God has brought together, let man not separate. And the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit are holy. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty, heard Isaiah in the temple. You, therefore, must also be holy as the Lord is holy. Sexual immorality is impossible for God's holy people because sexual immorality refuses to recognize God-given boundaries. And these boundaries are described and celebrated authoritatively in the Old Testament and redeemed through the crucifixion and resurrection of Christ. Moving back into chapter 5, verse 6, your boasting is not good. Don't you know that a little yeast leavens the whole batch of dough? Get rid of the old yeast so that you may be a new unleavened batch as you really are. Well, again, yeast is a major preoccupation in certain places of the Old Testament. Yeast or leaven, or what we would actually call uh, sourdough starter, uh, dough that's gone off, that you save from one batch and you just leave it in a warm place for a very long time and then you, inter- and then you introduce it into new dough, uh, sourdough starter. Bread was routinely made with this, but not during the f- feast of Passover. At Passover, all houses had to be entirely leaven-free. You chucked out the old sourdough starter, or it was all consumed in advance for the house to be leaven-free, and the bread of the Passover was unleavened. Well, symbolically, leaven, or um, as it's translated, yeast, that stands for influence. A little leaven leavens the whole batch of dough. A vivid picture from the kitchen of how a little influence influences everything, for better or for worse. So then, for example, positively, Jesus to his disciples in one place, the kingdom of heaven is like leaven, it's like yeast that a woman took and mixed into about 60 pounds of flour until it worked all through the dough. And in another place, negatively, Be on your guard against the yeast of the Pharisees and Sadducees. The kingdom of God will influence the whole world, but the disciples must be careful of the influence of the Pharisees and Sadducees. So Paul continues to see the Old Testament as directly relevant and as authoritative, but now interpreted through the lens of Jesus and his crucifixion and resurrection. For Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed. Therefore, we, therefore, let us keep the festival, not with the old bread leavened with malice and wickedness, but with the unleavened bread, bread of sincerity and truth. Um, in essence, in these two chapters, Paul is rebuking the whole Corinthian church for its inability to create and sustain a countercultural New Testament Christian culture. That's the big issue. The whole church is not living out who they really are. 
the whole church is failing to live out who they already are. And so with respect to people who would undermine that culture by incorporating into the Christian life and community practices irreconcilable with being a Christian, Paul expects the church to judge and to, quoting verse 13, expel the wicked person from among you. Once again, Paul is teaching from the Old Testament. This is a direct quote from at least seven different places in the Old Testament, from the book of Deuteronomy in particular. You are to purge the evil one from among you. However, when Deuteronomy uses that phrase, you are to purge the evil from among you, in six places out of seven, what that means is that you are to stone the guilty party to death. Uh, Let's look at one such place, Deuteronomy 17. What is the punishment for a man or woman caught worshipping other gods, bowing down to them or to the sun or the moon or the stars in the sky? Verses 6 and 7. On the testimony of two or three witnesses, a person is to be put to death, but no one is to be put to death on the testimony of only one witness. The hands of the witnesses must be the first in putting that person to death and then the hands of all the people. You must purge the evil from among you. Uh, So although Paul is teaching from the Old Testament and his assumption is that it is authoritative, he is not asking the Corinthian church to take the guilty man, to the city gate and stone him to death. Again, he sees the Old Testament as authoritative, but he is applying it in a new way. Through the lens of Jesus Christ, his atoning death and resurrection as the real salvation event that changes everything. We might now, uh, kind of moving backwards, you may have noticed, we're now going to, see and hopefully read in a new way verses 2 to 5 of chapter 5. From verse 2, And you are proud? Shouldn't you rather have gone into mourning and have put out of your fellowship the man who has been doing this? For my part, even though I am not physically present, I am with you in spirit. As one who is present with you in this way, I have already passed judgment in the name of our Lord Jesus on the one who has been doing this. So, when you are assembled and I am with you in spirit and the power of our Lord Jesus is present, hand this man over to Satan for the destruction of the flesh so that his spirit may be saved on the day of the Lord. Now, Again, to the Greek thinking mind, by which I mean to the Corinthian mind, but also to the Western thought world, as it still is today, a thinking we've inherited, need to rid ourselves of, the physical and the spiritual are two opposite and opposing categories. They're very different things. In fact, they're opposite things often in our thinking. So then, for example, we might think that a person is made up of physical and spiritual components. So that the physical plus the spiritual equals the whole person. 
That is not how Paul thinks. No, Paul, in his Hebrew Old Testament saturated mind, he doesn't think that way at all. The physical, the flesh, is the whole person. And the spiritual is the whole person. But the flesh is the whole person in orientation to or in reference to the world, whereas the spirit is the whole person, but the person now in orientation to or in reference to God. So when Paul says, even though I am not physically present, I am with you in spirit, he doesn't mean I'm actually absent, but I'm sympathetically with you in my thoughts and prayers. He doesn't mean that. Nor does he mean, because I'm not physically present, but only spiritually present, I'm present, but present only partially. No, he doesn't mean that either. No, he means he's fully present. He means, I am fully, literally present, all of me, but in spirit, or more meaningfully, in the spirit. So then, the whole church, not just the pastor or the elders or some ecclesial commission, the whole church is to assemble. They are to wait for Paul to be fully present spiritually. Just as the Spirit picked Ezekiel up and took him to Jerusalem all the while he was physically in Babylon, just as Jesus went to the temple all the while physically still in the wilderness of Galilee, so too Paul obviously travels in the Spirit. And the Corinthian Christians already know what that looks like. What did it look like? How did they know that Paul had arrived spiritually? I haven't the faintest idea. And I don't, think many people, I don't think many people do. But for all of their sinfulness and silliness, it's plainly obvious that this bunch of Christians in Corinth who are familiar with encountering our Lord Jesus demonstrably present in the power of the Holy Spirit in a way that few of us, at least in the Western world, could really have any idea of. They know a lot of things we don't. But then and only then, when Paul is fully present, just fully present spiritually, not fully present physically, when Paul is fully present, when Jesus is demonstrably, obviously present in the power of the Holy Spirit, then and then, then and only then, they are to hand the man over to Satan for the destruction of the flesh so that the spirit might be saved on the day of the Lord. What on earth does that mean? Uh, well, actually, theologians go to town over this, uh, um, and there's much debate. Um, we can safely arrive, actually, at what Paul means by eliminating what he's very unlikely to mean or by eliminating what he clearly can't mean. And saving you the journey, I'll give you the conclusion. The guilty man will be formally told he is no longer a member of the church. And as such, he is invited to leave and thereafter he's a member of the world, not a member of the church. Today we call this excommunication. No longer in communion, no longer in community. There is no expectation that this is going to somehow kill him. Rather, the prayerful hope is that he will see the light, 
that he will see himself in the light. No longer loved and supported by this Christ-focused community of love, he will suddenly understand. And he himself will crucify his world orientation, that is, the flesh, in order that he might focus afresh on his God orientation, that is, the spirit. Um, We're not done with this passage, chapter 5, but that's probably enough for one day. Um, We've already learnt a lot uh, about Paul's use of the Old Testament and his expectations of Christian church life together. By way of conclusion, uh, here are three reflections, just briefly. One, uh, these chapters are a case study, not canon law. That doesn't mean we can't learn stuff. Um, We must read it, digest it, and learn from it. But it does mean that we should be very careful in thinking through how we apply it. Just as we wouldn't lift the rule, the one who is unwilling to work shall not eat, from its context in 2 Thessalonians, or just as we wouldn't lift up the rule, no widow may be put on the list of widows unless she is over 60, from its context in 1 Timothy, so too here and now, This isn't a text on how to deal with sexually promiscuous Christians. Rather, it is one of a group of texts that will inform us as we prayerfully consider how we might deal in our cultural context with sexual immorality among us. Two, we note, or perhaps more accurately, I note, I was surprised to see it, that biblically, dealing with the possibility of discipline and excommunication is a matter for the whole church, not, not a select few, not just the eldership, nor the bishops, nor some ecclesial commission. We all take responsibility for the East, for the influence, for the culture of this place. Thirdly, in every way, the action of disassociation and excommunication was clearly intended by Paul to be remedial and not judgmental or punitive in the sense of being done as an act of revenge. It is for both the welfare of the community and also we see for the welfare of the offender that Paul issued a command that a man be put outside. This is important to register because cults today routinely use the threat of radical social ostracization as a way of controlling people. Insofar as they do that, it is enormously damaging. Therefore, I would imagine that if excommunication or the threat of it was going to be used in these ways, that would grieve the Holy Spirit. Well, uh, we'll continue this discussion next week when uh, we continue to look at chapter 5, but we move into chapter 6 as well, and uh, we introduce the other presenting issue, uh, lawsuits among Christians in the church in Corinth. And uh, the Lord be with you all.